The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Hi, everybody. My name is John Addis. I'm the founder and editor of Intelligent Investor, and I have with me here today, Nathan Bell. Hello, Nathan. Hi, John. I can't see your guitars in there. Oh, yeah, there's two guitars in the background there. We'll be getting those out later. If uh, if, if listeners are disappointed, Nathan's going to do some uh, Guns N' Roses solos later on, right? I feel like 12 more months and I'll be there. <laughs> I'm only two years down now. Much harder than I thought, but 12 months, I promise. Okay. There's something to look forward to. I'll even wear the Slash's uh, top hat. Oh, that'll make it. <laughs> I'll make it. So we're here today to talk about another in our series of top 10 growth stocks. Today's subject is a company called MF Financial, which would only be familiar to members if they'd read the Ideas Lab back in October 2020 when the company was called Molis for reasons I'll, I'll sh- I'm sure Nathan will exp- explain. I think we'll kick things off, Nathan, with probably one of the best precedes to a bit of research we've ever done, which is just the biggest dangling carrot I've read, I think, from any of your stories. So it goes like this. Ever wanted to go back in time to buy a stock? Buying Molis today could be like buying Macquarie in 2009. Now, there's no way you could not read that story after reading that pre-seed, but can you start by telling us why was 2009 so significant for Macquarie Group or Macquarie Bank, as I think it was known back then? Yeah, so, I mean, we could spend an hour or two probably talking about that period. Let's not do that, (laughs) Nate. Basically, what happened was Macquarie had already moved to what you might remember was essentially a, a satellite model where it had the traditional corporate banking and institutional banking and all those sort of big services, financial services for big companies. And that's where it traditionally made quite a bit of money. But what it had done in the lead up to the GFC was it produced, uh, people might remember, there was all those uh, all those other funds that were listed on the ASX, but now so those separately listed entities. Um, there was like a lot, lot of uh, property trust ones, for example, um, office, I think. Yeah. Yep. So all these roads and they were just, they just, you know, produced enormous fees for the, for Macquarie because Macquarie would have a stake in those businesses. But what it would do is every time there was a foreign currency trade or there was hedging, um, or they're going to buy these businesses and they doing all just, there was fee after fee after fee in, um, if you might, um, it's interesting actually to go back to some of those old annual reports and actually have a look at the related party transactions and it blows your mind. for pages. <laughs> uh, and trying to figure it all out was uh, was also pretty tough too, but you knew what um, you know what was really happening. You, you just sort of didn't need to know all the details. It was just a matter of how much they were taking out. So anyway, what happened was they leveraged those satellite uh, businesses up so much that they essentially they blew up. Um, and so a lot of them had to be taken back in-house or they were... Uh, recast as some, something else. Um, and a lot of those sort of externally managed funds, as they were called, uh, at, became internally managed funds. And, and unfortunately, I think a lot of the CEOs and management staff of those businesses actually kept on through those businesses because the, you know, it's just a bit of the irony was that the, they were so complicated and there was so much going on during the GFC, they actually needed those people there to actually <laughs> fix the businesses up and keep them yeah. going. Yeah. But, but, but the realisation from that was, um, you know, partly because of that experience, but but also I think that, that looking at some of the big financial institutions that were becoming more successful overseas, like a Brookfield, 
was that actually owning the assets was the way to go. And because there's a, there's a limited number of transactions you can do for corporate banking and all that sort of stuff. And, and it's very cyclical. So you get this mad rush of activity, which we're seeing now. Maybe we're starting to see the end of merger and acquisition activity in the market as the you know we get to this end of, or at the end of this big 13-year bull market. And then it drops off a cliff. And if you go to 2009, you can just see that in Macquarie's numbers. Yeah. And so what they did then was they really pushed this funds management uh, strategy and it's just worked an absolute treat and the easiest way to see how successful it's been is that is to compare goldman sachs uh, so the u.s listed investment bank with macquarie and compare their returns and basically just the productivity and the value created by each business since the gfc and goldman didn't make the switch they just stuck with their traditional banking services and macquarie didn't they've really become a funds management a funds manager now that's that's more what they are than anything else and so Molus has really been following that model, but it's been doing it more from the start rather than um, sort of, you know, getting halfway through life and then saying we need to switch the strategy. Yeah. So that, that 2009 was what caused that switching approach by Macquarie Bank to becoming an asset manager, um, which is a, a more reliable kind of business. So what kind of parallels are there between MF Financial today and where Macquarie was, say, 10 or 15 years ago. What, what do you think are the key things that remind you of those similarities? Yeah, so one of the – I remember when I wrote um, – so there's a few articles on this on our website. There was the original Ideas Lab when it was um, very cheap, but it was just really illiquid, so there was just didn't want to cover it. And then I um, started running out of ideas a bit later on as the, the market recovered, and I thought, oh, well, I'll upgrade this and try and get it in the funds and – even though I think I've got little hope and it turned out I did have no hope and uh, just wasn't able to get it in there. And um, so and I think on the website too, it's um, this separate listing there for Molos and MA Financial, which is there just is. A, Yeah, yeah, check that. Yeah, it's, it's annoying. It's a problem we just can't get fixed with our data provider. But, um, but looking back, it was one of the comments on the original upgrade from a member was, I just don't see this business has any competitive advantages. And if you've read any of the old investment books, you read about the dangers of buying, you know, something like an advertising agency or a fund manager. And we've seen that with Magellan is probably a perfect case where we stumbled recently yeah. was buying a business that where the people leave the building at the end of the night. And that's where your, your talent and your value goes mm. because you're always vulnerable to people leaving. But if you ever look at Brookfield or Macquarie and ask, well, what's really been their secret source and why are they different and why have they succeeded so, so well, um, on the global stage too, and, and really Brookfield even, uh, and Macquarie, like not just in the US and Australia, but all around the world, really. Um, they've got smart people and they reward them for it. So, you know, you can argue about, um, you know, I guess, ethical concerns about the business model and are they really adding any value or are they really just creaming the money for themselves and doing a lot of transactions that aren't really creating value for anyone but themselves. Um, but that aside, they're just, they've got a culture. It's very performance-based. If you don't perform, you don't have a role there. But if you do perform, you get rewarded very well for it. And I, that's why the staff costs are just enormous for these businesses. Yeah. And Molus is really just, um, sorry, just go back one second, really formed by um, a guy called Andrew Pridham. And he uh, met Ken Molus in America, who was a very well-known banker. And Ken really liked Andrew and said, look, I'm going to give you the cap when you go start up Molus in Australia. And so Andrew's just really been trying to build that sort of similar mentality of trying to get smart people to the business and giving them money and saying, go and perform, find ways to invest, invest this money and, and grow our business. 
Yeah, it's an interesting story, the beginning of this business, because it seems as though Pridham really had to convince Mollis of the benefits of asset management. They were very, very much bolted on to the investment banking kind of thinking. And it was really him that convinced him to to make this break and let let him do things differently in Australia without that kind of credibility. I don't know whether he'd been successful in, in talking him into it, but it's it's just worked out really, really well. So when you look at their their latest results presentation, you can see that about 70% of EBITDA comes from asset management. Um, how's, how's that part of the business performing now? Yeah, so this is probably the most important point about this business and how it's performed since, um, I mean, I was originally talking about it on, on Stock Take, I think one of our mm. episodes early on when it was, like it got down to, a, I think it was $1.29 or something yeah, like that was crazy. the low point yeah. um, during the bear market a couple of years ago, two and a half years ago. Um, it was at three now. <laughs> and um, and uh, it was just Ill- illiquid and the share price was about $5 before the fall. And, and I remember thinking, oh, well, if it gets back to $5, that'd be a pretty good result. Now, the share price ended up, uh, I think it might have actually hit $10 um, mm. last year. And the earnings just absolutely screamed uh, out of that bear market over the last couple of years. And basically, everything's gone right for the company. So you think about all this M&A activity, they've done really well there. Um, so they bought some hotel assets, which were, were probably poorly timed looking back. Mm. Um, but you know, obviously, you can't forecast a, um, a uh, COVID sort of moment. And so, so the hotel assets had, had really been pushed down and uh, Red Cape was essentially one of those satellite funds like Macquarie used to have that yeah. housed a lot of those and that it, it was performing very poorly as you'd expect because all the hotels were closed during COVID due to lockdown. So no one's buying beers, no one's sitting down for dinner, no one's staying in hotels. Um, so you had all these property sort of devaluations or pressure on valuations and then that all just turned 180 degrees. Um, as we burst out of COVID, or at least it burst out of that bear market anyway. And so what you've seen more recently is hotel assets around Australia is like, there's just a bidding war for basically any pub you can find on the East Coast at the moment. And so that's been an area where they've been heavily invested. So that's done really well. So their earnings have gone, you know, basically, I think people must have thought it was almost going broke. Um, during that bear market. I don't really know why its finances are in good shape. Do you think liquidity might have had something to do with it? Because I think the staff directors and there's a lot of inside ownership in this business it's i can see why you're very much attracted to that because it does look like there's this this founder sort of mentality in the business and one of the ways of locking in high quality staff that you need in an operation like this that go home in the lift in the evening is to make sure they've got real financial incentive to make it work so they've got i think 45 percent of the stock so it's quite illiquid um do you feel as though that illiquidity would mean you could have just a couple of investors who are really panicked by the fall, they sell out and then this thing just drops really quickly and then it comes straight back up after that, those transactions have gone through? Yeah, I think there was another stock I was following probably even more, just as closely anyway, because we actually owned it in the portfolios was 360 Capital, which has a similar situation where yeah. the CEO owns a third of the shares and I remember waking up one morning and I think someone just must have woke up after a bad dream and jumped on the couch, opened his trading account and <laughs> sold, I think it was only like $8,000 worth of shares or something. That might and, have been me. <laughs> and this was like one of the safest companies on the market. Like it, it had been perfectly set up. Like it was set up for a, a moment like we had with the COVID bear market and it had been set up that way for a while. So it was as safe as houses. And, um, you know, the stock fell 12% that morning. And so we had to wear that in the portfolios, even though there's nothing wrong with the stock. So mm. I think that probably is a good sign of the times. And I think it's a good point. Um, and the staff remain very heavily invested in the business. And it's 
uh, it's a pro and a con. I think it's a massive pro, but um, on the flip side, the liquidity has been an issue for this business. And um, American Molus, so the big sort of head company in the mm. US, and Ken Molus himself, um, together currently still own about 20% of the stock. Uh, I think Ken owns about 7% and the other 14 or 15 is by the US uh, headstock, if you like. But mm -hmm. they've been selling out and I expect they'll sell out more over time um, so they can just focus on their own thing because it was really about just getting this business started. And I think just they've sort of going their own way and Andrew Pridham's got things sorted. And, and the other thing is too, you need to be able to reward um, your staff with equity. So if you want these people to own staff, you over the long term, you certainly need to be creating value to justify higher share prices to mm -hmm. see their own wealth building. And you can't do that if your stock's really illiquid because you just can't get into any of the indexes. Do you think that's another parallel with Macquarie? I remember conversations we used to have when Macquarie was really going through that growth phase about how the staff were owning a bigger and bigger portion of the available equity. Um, do you think that's a risk in this business where the staff become very powerful and start <laughs> maybe getting up to 50 or 60%? Would that concern you? Look, the one thing for me is, um, yeah, just on the, the thing is the, the business share registry is just going to get more and more and more diversified over time as it gets bigger. Hmm. Um, you know, I think the two co-CEOs at the moment own, I think it's maybe six or 7% between them. Um, and Andrew Pridham still owns, um, got the number here somewhere. He's got 25% of the shares. So I would expect that now he's fairly recently moved back to more of a chairman tight role and and the two younger guys who started the business with him so co-founders um they're the ones that are going to drive the business from here so there's really no way i think like i think the trend is actually the other way um i think andrew Pridham would probably be more of a seller over time uh, and it's very like if you think of the other two co-founders as sort of eight percent shareholders um, there's no real way that you're going to be able to reward them enough to get them up to 20 or 30 no, percent of the shareholding and, and i think everybody knows when they start these businesses is they all want to be in the indexes and they all want to get bigger. And as you get bigger, you get a more diversified and you get more fund managers and institutions owning the shares rather than insiders. But okay. you, you still want that reward there because you don't want these people leaving. And so you imagine that that, that liquidity issue might might get might lessen in its impact over the years. Yeah, I think I, I think that's uh, absolutely like hundred percent definite. Um, we're already seeing Molus um, sold about um, five. I think it's like six percent of their holding, which was twenty percent. So now it's down at 14 or 15. I think that was about um, less than a year ago. And they sold some shares around seven bucks. And so I expect we'll actually see more of that selling over time, mm -hmm. not less. Okay. So we've covered off the asset management um, division. There's the corporate advisory and equities, which is, I suppose, just similar to what you might call general investment banking activities. Is there anything that they do differently in that division to say Macquarie? Now, I, look, I'm not aware that they would do anything different. I think it's all pretty vanilla stuff, but I, th I think the difference is just that Molus is a much smaller company, so they can do these deals, these smaller deals, if you like, yeah. and it actually does move the needle for them, whereas yeah. in a way it doesn't for Macquarie. Um, so what you really want is, um, you know, it's nice when that business grows, and that's why we've got record earnings at the moment. They're saying the company's going to do about 40 cents in earnings per share at the moment, so you go, well, if that's true, like why on earth has the share price fallen from ten dollars and back back to mm. about five dollars fifty this morning? Mm. And pretty, I'm, you know, basically it's just the ma the market's going. Look, interest rates are going up, asset values are falling, and the M and A activity is going to slow down from these record highs at some point. So that's really going to be a hole in their future earnings, and the market's trying to uh, adjust for that. So that's that's what's going on. Um, but you just can't have that M and A activity going along at the the rate it is. 
Mm. I don't think there's any particular competitive advantage. I think it's just relationships. But um, it's I think it's even though the molus, the headstock, if you like, the sort of overseas parent, uh, even if they're not technically um, a shareholder in the future at some point, I think the relationship is still very strong. Mm-hmm. And I think that would actually will help molars maybe one day being able to um, do more overseas if it starts to getting a, a bit big in Australia. So I think that's actually a, a real valuable relationship, even if it's not um, necessarily on the share registry in future. Okay. It's a, it's a very different kind of business to, I mean, yesterday I spoke with Gaurav about Levisa. And you look at the different businesses we have on this list, and this is probably the one that's most leveraged to people rather than an idea or a product. Uh, It's a very different kind of business. And in those businesses, the culture is really important and you need to get the incentives right. What what is it about MF Financial that makes you feel as though you've got that, they've got that right? Is it just the, the, the investment that the staff have, the ownership the staff have in the business, or is there something else going on in there? I think, you know, you're always an outsider with these things. So you mm. sort of sometimes, you know, guessing or have an opinion and you never know whether you're quite right. But um, interesting, Andrew Pridham actually wrote a book uh, last year and published it. Well, Blimey, uh, this is a bit of a shocking finance. <laughs> <laughs> I, have to, I have to check this out. Uh, and actually, the, I didn't read it, but um, basically, the, I was, um, you know, I read a review of someone who had read it and basically just said it was boring. And I was actually really happy with that because there was no secret. It was just really about long-term investing and, mm. and developing relationships and looking after your clients. And there was mm. really simple stuff. And But if you do the simple stuff well, it's amazing what you can create. And Andrew Pridham has been at this for a long time and he's um, some AFL followers might know that he's the president of the Sydney Swans and he doesn't mind having a fight with Eddie who used to be the Eddie Maguire who used to be president of Collingwood. So, mm. you know, he's not afraid to have stand up and have the, these fights when he, when he needs to, if you like, all these arguments. Um, but at the same time, he understands the whole idea of long-term value and looking after your clients. And it's amazing. Like, you know, even we even know just from, you know, our little business that, and when you do the wrong thing, you lose people and you don't get them back. There's no second chances. And so yeah. if you really look after your clients and keep doing a good job and keep looking after them, um, you can create a really, really powerful business if you can keep the talent. And, and the fact I've really liked the handover from Andrew to these co-founders, like it's been really long time in the making. It's been slow. It's been thought out. These are guys who have been there from the start. And this is a business that started in 2009, listed at 2017. And what I really like now about the business is because it's been successful, uh, I think the even with the share price falling back to five fifty from ten dollars, I think the annual total shareholder shareholder return since listing at about two dollars thirty five or something mm. um, has been over twenty percent. So if you're the, if you're the sort of person who thinks, well, you know, I've just finished my degree, I want to go into corporate banking. And I'm thinking about where can I go where I might actually be able to do something really interesting mm. and maybe start a little bit further up potentially than um, if I go to Macquarie, for example, where there's already a lot of people that you yeah. have to be fighting against, whereas Molus is a little bit new, but very successful. And you can see that the equity is building for these people. And it's like, well, maybe I can actually do something more interesting and get more responsibility at, here at Molus or MA Financial as it is now. Mm. So that, that's part of the culture. In terms of the business operations, they've also got a lending operation, again, a little bit like Macquarie, that's gone into residential mortgages. Can you tell us uh, what they're doing in this area? I think they recently bought uh, a company called Finsure, uh, which is a, a, a broking aggregator, I think. Yes. So, so basically, I just think of this as a, a mortgage distribution business. 
um, very vanilla, um, no big risks. And you see Macquarie's actually, I think now are they the fifth largest mortgage lender or, mm. or sixth in Australia now. Um, it's just very easy money. Like, like I mean, we're talking about uh, the big banks. It's like they don't even really review a loan um, application. It just goes through the process. And as long as the boxes are ticked and the proof's all there, the loan gets done. So it's not yeah. people heavy. And so what we've seen with this fintech move is everyone's just trying to find new distribution and cheap distribution outlets because the big banks are sort of mature and they find it hard to get new customers. Uh, but if you've got these nifty brokers or offering these deals and it can all be done online, which is where people are looking now, then essentially it's just money for jam. Yeah. Okay. So where would you see the risks in this in this company then, Nathan? Obviously, it seems as though those three divisions are all impacted one way or another through interest rate rises. That would be one, I imagine. Yeah. yeah. One thing, um, it's funny the little things that stick out sometimes with companies that you like. It's just something mm. that's a throwaway line that most people wouldn't, wouldn't notice, but just really sticks in your mind. And the one that stuck in my mind was, I can't remember uh, who said it, but one of the chiefs was doing the results update, maybe it was like 12 or 18 months ago and said, you know, this is all well and good. You know, our earnings are going great. Valuations are going up and hotels are starting to perform now getting over COVID. But, you know, where are we with this low interest rate policy in two years when valuations mm. have maxed out? Now that's not the sort of thing, honestly, you would hear from, CEO, oh, kind of how to terrify the shareholder. <laughs> exactly, that kind right. of honesty, <laughs> and that's what I love. Like it just that little thing really stuck in my mind because it's just normally the, um, the CEO has become a marketing agent for the business as much as you know the administrator of the business and staff and all that sort of stuff. So when I heard, so um, so the big risk to the business, obviously in the short term, is the cyclical element. And you only have to go and look at Macquarie's results through those cyclical times and see how, you know, it's feast or famine with that M&A and corporate activity stuff. So that's what the market's really adjusted to already. So I think that's actually already in the price. Mm-hmm. Um, what may not be in the price already, and I'm actually getting pretty positive, like at $5.50 and thinking 10 years ahead, I think I actually think this is not, not a bad deal, but I just don't feel like there's a rush to get into it just yet as mm-hmm. asset prices are sort of still falling and haven't sort of, um, you know, higher interest rates are only just working their way through the economy. So I don't think there's a rush to be in fund managers at the moment. Uh, but the cyclicality is a big risk. But the, the more long-term risk is just you lose one of these co-founders and and the business isn't big enough and diversified yet to withstand that change. And the culture really does change. And all of a sudden you've got big teams of staff leaving. And that's yeah. the absolute big risk to me. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting to read about, um, I think James Packer was being advised by the people at MA Financial in regards to the Crown transaction. I think I remember reading that somewhere. You know, it's, they're the kind of relationships that really can build a much bigger business if you're dealing with those kinds of issues. So the staff is a primary consideration. How do you think this lines up against an operation like Baron Joey over at Magellan? I've been absolutely amazed at the names I've seen associated uh, with MA Financial uh, representing people like Packer in the last 18 months. It really has mm. been quite phenomenal. And I don't know whether anything's changed there that like, would they have got that same deal or relationship three years ago or these long-term relationships? Cause you know, I've never really heard a lot about Molus in the past. Mm. Um, so, so I don't know that just, um, but I just, I just love that they're actually just, they're the guys that are winning the deal for for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, sorry, what was the other part of that question? How, how do you think they compare with, you know, a, oh, a small, yeah, like Baron Joey, small competitor like Baron Joey? Yeah, I think the, the interesting thing to me is that there's always a battle for market share, right? Because there's only so many deals to be done and it just becomes mm. who, who's got the best relationship over time. Because obviously, you know, these people are all very wealthy and they sort of all go around in the same circles. I think the, 
just in terms of an analytical viewpoint, uh, it's not so much comparing the market share. Obviously, that's always going to be important, but um, because the bigger the bigger issue at hand is if actually not getting those relationships, then something's changed at the culture or at the business, or maybe the key people have left. Um, but but more for me is actually Australia is a very small market for this stuff, and it's very cyclical. And what happens when even um, you know even when we go through another bull market in the years to come? There's um, it's just, you know, the Mollus or MMA Financial is just a much bigger business now doing these deals. Um, you know, they're going to have to start going for bigger deals to move the needle. Yeah. There's more competition for that. Then you're up against Macquarie and the other bigger investment banks who may not necessarily play at the smaller end of the market. So as time goes on, the markets that will play in get more competitive. And I think that's the bigger issue. And so then it's going to have to look at going overseas. Um, it already actually sort of has a... Chinese business, um, sort of mm-hmm. not what I'll call an overseas business, but um, so that's really what to look out for because you're just going to run into much bigger competitors who are already well established. Okay, now every, everything I've seen, I've seen about the business, apart from the company's website, which is kind of terrible, <laughs> but in a way that's good, don't you think? Like they're not too worried about what the general public thinks, um, and not spending heaps of money on a new website. It's just a, some bulk standard text and some images and it's pretty poor to be honest i mean <laughs> we could probably knock this up in an afternoon i kind of like that that sense of focus you know they're obviously worried about other stuff that's more important and it's kind of typical of a young growing business where those things that are kind of marginal you just push them to one side and say yeah let's just get a website done and not spend heaps of time on it because there's other stuff going on like having you know meetings with james packer and finding new contacts and buying new pubs. It, it's just, it seems like an exciting business at this stage. It is, it is interesting to see something that could grow much bigger and has got the right structure to grow much bigger. My guess is part of that too, is it's because it's been an institutional business where it deals with very large clients rather than the retail investors. Mm. Um, you know, it doesn't need to have that website that's easy to navigate. You're just not judged moves. on that kind of stuff. That's right. And, and I think that'll be interesting over time as, because no one, like if you talk to, you know, most investors, even if they've got plenty of experience in the market, they probably even haven't heard of MA Financial or Molus because no. um, it hasn't been around very long. But as it gets bigger, you know, I would suspect they'll probably start hearing more about it, if not because of the share price performance and the fact that it's just getting bigger. Uh, but my guess it will start spending more money on trying to get more retail investors to um, come and buy their products, but they just don't need to yet. So we, we've got a hold on the stock at the moment, Nath, I think, and uh, we've got a buy price below $5, is it? Yeah, that's what I stuck with. Um, I feel like it's um, it's almost just a bit of a wait and see. Like Pinnacle's the other one that mm. I really like the business. Um, but the lesson I've learned over the years with fund managers is you've got to buy them when they're growing. Um, the market tends to price them correctly uh, once they mature. And once they mature, they just tend to go backwards over time and have to really struggle to even just keep their share price where it is. And Platinum's a, a great example. It's just, you know, really hasn't made any money for shareholders since it's listed. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got a decent dividend, but, um, you know, maybe that gets you to square up, but you certainly haven't made a lot of money. But um, MA Financial, you know, still to me is early in the growth phase. And um, just something that else I've been thinking about lately is just this line by Charlie Munger, who just, uh, just said, look, I just got my money, you know, way back when, and I just invested in the best business I could find. That was it. And basically those two businesses were Costco and Berkshire Hathaway. Mm. And if you look at Berkshire Hathaway and say, well, what's, why has it been such a great business? You know, everyone knows Warren Buffett, you know, runs it, but why is, what was, what's the nature of that business that's allowed it to grow so fast? 
uh, with such great returns for so long. And it's really the flexibility of people and money. Hmm. You know, it's that ability in a sense, like, you know, us as a fund manager investing in different stocks, you know, Buffett's taken money from certain areas, going way back to the start, like a textile business, and said, we shouldn't be reinvesting the money back in the textile business. You know, X is the next thing we should invest in, or American Express is the next best idea. And then it was Coca-Cola. And that flexibility of capital is really powerful, actually. And I think that's why when you put that flexibility of money with smart people, you can change course in a way you can't. Like if you're Coca-Cola, you know, they got lucky by being able to sell us water, but... Um, you know, they sold soft drinks and they, they were never going to start selling computers or, you know, anything else. Whereas if you're MA Financial and you go, look, we've been in this cre- credit market, for example, and we've been making good returns for 10 years, but the competition's come now and the regulatory changes have meant we just don't make much money anymore. We go, all right, well, we'll close this down and mm. we'll invest in something else. And there's actually a lot of value in being able to do that. Yeah, it's very entrepreneurial. And when you think about Buffett and his, his history, you know, the idea that you could start with a printing press, and a local newspaper and end up as one of the biggest shareholders in the world's biggest tech company in the, in the course of an investment lifetime just shows a kind of flexibility and mentality that we should all kind of aspire to, I think. That it's ability a, to turn away from one thing that's reached its peak and look for something else that has that growth ahead of it. It's astounding. I know there's a lot of people sort of hating on Buffett over the sort of as he gets a bit older and they probably haven't made the most of some of the opportunities they've had, you know, particularly that bear market from a couple of years ago. And, mm. and I think also the GFC where he was, did some really good deals of financing companies and got a nice return, but he actually probably could have gone and bought some whole companies at the time and done much, much better. Yeah, they, they were calling him up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, so I, I don't really hate on Buffett. I, I think he's been incredible. And I think the, you know, the fact that he's actually in Apple now and owns so much of it, like you said, and he's been finally able to, maybe it was later than what it should have been, but the fact that he's gone with it now and he continues to beef up the Apple state, I just think the man's astounding. And, and uh, I'm sure when his time comes, um, there'll be the people I'll be actually be quite sad when him and Charlie are no longer with us. Cause they, you know, even though I'll actually have talked to them very briefly once, but um, when mm. they signed our dollar bill, but um, you know, when the fact that they're gone, well, actually, I think it'll be quite sad because um, you know, they've really um, done more, I think for individuals and investing than anyone I can think of. Way yeah. More. Yeah. They've been in an education in themselves. I, I think, especially for me, Charlie Munger was, I mean, I've, I think I've read everything, almost everything he's written. Um, and yeah, their ability to communicate is really, really underestimated. I think it's not just their investing ability. Uh, just thinking on those lines, though, Nath, before we wrap this up, do you think that that co-CEO, which is an unusual arrangement, having a co-CEO, well, it, pretty much set up this co-CEO arrangement. Do you think he's done that having looked at Platinum and looked at Magellan and see how that key man risk is something that can really, really devastate uh, finance businesses? He's doing that to try and avert that risk. I certainly wouldn't uh, underestimate his thinking because he's been um, essentially he's been grooming them for this role for I think they took over officially uh, maybe twelve or eighteen months ago. Mm. So we're going back to two thousand nine since he was essentially the the top guy running the business and really driving it hard as an executive as opposed to a chairman type role. Um, he's not officially the chairman. I think he's got some sort of strange vice president chairman role, whereas mm-hmm. uh, it feels like he sort of just gets involved when he needs to now. Um, but I, I think he's a smart guy and I think he's built this business to go the distance. And, I, and I'm sure that with these guys by his side, you know, they've all worked together as a trio um, for, you know, what's that, uh, 13 years now. And he finally felt mm. the time was right to hand over the responsibility to these guys. Uh, I mean, um, 
you know, Pritam's not not a young guy anymore, but like certainly capable of doing the job for many more years to come in, in the current yeah. role. Um, but I just really love that this, it was seamless. Everything's been seamless with this business. Um, they've over delivered. Um, I'm just um, and, and they're talking themselves down. What more <laughs> could you want? <laughs> well, I just really like it. There's there's no guarantees in life, but I just know if I can find 20 businesses like this, I'm going to do great. Yeah. Okay, that's a great note to end it on. Thanks very much, Nath. Um, if members are interested in this stock, keep an eye on the website. We hope to get a chance to upgrade this in the next few months. It's already in one of the portfolios, I believe, Nath. Yeah, it's just a very tiny very holding. holding. Nathan regrets not buying more when he had the chance, but he shouldn't feel bad about that. Uh, thanks very much, Nath. Pleasure always, John. All right, cheers. See ya.